So this is week number 25 in our study of the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 7. And for the last three weeks, we've been going through this vision that Daniel had. You remember the setting is some 15 years previous to when Daniel writes the book. Uh, it's the first year that Belshazzar was, uh, Belshazzar was the king. And so Daniel is writing based upon some notes that he wrote down shortly after having this vision. But it's many years later. You remember this vision uh, has uh, Daniel sees four beasts that come up out of the sea that's stirred by the four winds of heaven, the winds from the north, south, east, and west, stirring the waters, uh, indicating turmoil in the waters. And then these four beasts rise up, and Daniel describes each for us. The first was, um, was a lion that had uh, wings of an eagle, and then the second was a, a bear that was humped up on one side. The third was a leopard that had four wings on its back. And then the fourth is not compared to uh, a beast at all, or at least a, an animal at all. But Daniel simply says it was um, terrifying and extremely strong. It was dreadful, he says. And so we've talked about what these represent. Um, Daniel would have understood that the first one um, represented the lion with wings of eagles, represented Babylon and the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar built, and then that lasted until just a few years um, from when Daniel was writing the book. Um, They were replaced by the Medo-Persians, who were represented by the bear, And so Daniel would have seen both of those. He saw Babylon as it happened, and uh, he was one of their captives. And then he saw the exchange of the kingdom from Babylon to Medo-Persia, and he was now serving the Persians. So Daniel saw both of those, understood them. The third one, he didn't know what it was, didn't know when it would be, but it was uh, represented the time of Alexander the Great and the great expansion of the Grecian Empire and uh, which ultimately was then divided into four. And so Daniel didn't know about that, but that is what history teaches us. And then the fourth dreadful beast is up for discussion, right? Uh, Many believe that it was Rome that came after the Greeks and that basically conquered and ruled the world for 400 years. That's a possibility. Um, There's also the possibility that it represents a kingdom that has not yet been but will yet be in the future. Uh, That's the position that I take, but I could be wrong, that there's a coming kingdom at the end of the world, and that kingdom is represented uh, by this dreadful beast. We went over into um, Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17 and saw the, um, the strong parallels between what Daniel saw and what is written of by the Apostle John in 13 and 17 of Revelation. So if that's true, then there are only four kingdoms, and that the Romans would not be included in it, because there's yet a kingdom to come at the end of the age. We'll talk about that in many different ways and many different flavors as we go through the next few years of discussion, if the Lord wills, and, um, and, and come back and revisit this. Um, We also talked about there's strong parallels between chapter 7 of Daniel, which is Daniel's first vision, and that of chapter 2 of Daniel, which is Nebuchadnezzar's first vision 
that things seem to match up pretty well. Four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God. And that's what we see in, um, in Daniel's vision is four kingdoms followed by the eternal kingdom of God. Um, so we'll talk about some of that at the end today as we get through this final uh, description that Daniel goes through in this vision. So what I'd like to do is just go back and read a few verses that we've already talked about and then read through the end of the vision. So I'll begin in uh, Daniel chapter 7 and begin in verse 9 where we see the Ancient of Days come on the scene. So Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9, there the scripture reads, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So last week we we talked about the Ancient of Days and um, went through some discussion where actually out of the scriptures are able to determine that the Ancient of Days is the one true God of heaven. And you remember we did that by looking into verse 13 and seeing that it's the Ancient of Days that gives to the Son of Man a kingdom and dominion. And then you compare that to chapter 2 and verse 21 where Daniel in his praise to God said that the God of Heaven is the one who establishes kings and removes kings. He's the one that gives dominion to men. And so if if he's the one giving the dominion to the Son of Man, then that means he's the God of heaven. So out of the scriptures, we were able to determine that, yes, this Ancient of Days is the one true everlasting God whom we call God the Father. And so um, you can make that argument. You can just think that's true, but it's better, much better to be able to make the argument out of the scriptures that that's who we're actually talking about here. The same will be true for the Son of Man as we go through this today. Much better to make a biblical argument than just say, oh, I know that's talking about Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, maybe, right? But you need to be able to prove it and to be able to show it out of the Scriptures. So we'll make an attempt to do that today. Before we get there, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, verse 11, where you remember that the the fourth beast had ten horns on his head, and then uh, an eleventh horn, a smaller horn, appeared, and before that eleventh horn, three horns were torn out by the roots. 
Well, that's the horn that's making all the boastful words. You remember that that horn had an eyes like the eyes of men and had a mouth like uh, so that he could make forth the boastful claims. Um, if you get over in other sects of Scripture, it's not necessarily just boastful, but it's actually blasphemies against God himself. And so this horn, Daniel sees him as um, still being boastful even after God has taken his throne and the books have been opened to judge the world and these what are called myriads upon myriads. We talked about that a little bit. The ESV says uh, ten thousands upon ten thousands. That's not enough people. There's more people than that. That's only a hundred million people, but there will actually be billions of people um, before this throne because uh, all the unbelievers will be judged. And so um, this horn continues to make boastful claims even after the judgment is set, even after this flame of fire is coming out from the throne of God, that the horn continues to make um, boastful remarks. Now, if you compare that to some of the things that I'm sure you've studied before out of Revelation, does, does that seem to match what is in the book of Revelation? That the boastful horn, that the, the man that we would call the Antichrist, is still making boastful claims while God is seated on his throne. Does that match what is written in Revelation? Well, in Revelation in chapter 19, you have the slaughter at Armageddon, right? That all the armies are gathered against God, who they see in the sky, Jesus Christ seated on, seated on a white horse, with uh, the name that only he can see on his thigh, right? That is later revealed to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, so that's Jesus Christ coming, and there's actually no battle, right? Battle of Armageddon is a, is a misnomer. It's actually just a slaughter, right? Christ, with the sword of his mouth, speaks a word, and they're all killed. And so there is no battle. It's just a, it's a total decimation of the army, such that the... Um, the blood rises up to the bridles of the horses for 305 miles. So there's a lot of blood in that valley. And at that time, when that battle takes place, then the Antichrist and the false prophet are seized and thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? The judgment in Revelation doesn't happen for another thousand years where God, and in that case Christ Jesus, sits on his, sits on his throne and, and um, has the great white throne judgment. So the Antichrist, the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire much before that. But here Daniel sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne and then these this uh, boastful horn, which later will match up, and you'll see that it is indeed the, um, the chief prince of the evil one, which would be the Antichrist, that he is given to fire, but it's before the throne of God. That's not how it happens in Revelation. They're separated. 
So as you think about these things, how do you reconcile those two things? Because they're both, we've seen in, in Revelation 13 and, um, and 19 and 20, that these match up, that this is talking about the same event. They're not two different kingdoms, it's all the same thing. So how do you reconcile that Daniel sees it before the throne of God, and yet John doesn't see it before the throne of God? It happens a thousand years before that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and that's the way that Old Testament prophecy goes, right? That things that are revealed in the New Testament are compressed in the Old Testament. And so Daniel doesn't see all the details that John sees. There's further revelation when you get to John. Daniel sees the judgment of the godly and the ungodly as side by side, simultaneous. John doesn't see it that way. He sees one judgment and then a thousand years later, a second judgment where all the dead are raised um, to go before the judgment seat of God. So the reconciliation of those things is the compression of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And that's the way that most Old Testament prophecies are, is that things are compressed. The Old Testament um, prophets did not clearly see the age of grace that we live in, the day of the church. They had no idea about the church. They also did not see the judgment that extends um, for um, a thousand years with one judgment coming and then the other judgment coming a thousand years later. They didn't see that detail. They did see, Daniel does see the seven years of tribulation. We'll talk about that later. Um, when we look at the second vision of Daniel, he clearly sees that there are seven years of tribulation, but he doesn't see the time after the tribulation of the thousand-year millennial reign. So things are compressed. Go ahead, Randy. Well, just like we talked before we left um, last Sunday, where it says, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Right. That's where really compressed compared Revelation, yeah. where we know who who is worthy of the scroll. Right. And then the Lamb is presented, and that's all fleshed out for us. Where here it's just a couple sentences. Yeah, and, and, and Revelation has expanded greatly of why Christ is, is worthy to receive the scroll, what he does with the scroll, what the scroll represents. All of that is given in detail in Revelation, whereas John, I mean, whereas Daniel just sees it all compressed. He's not given that detail. Lori, do you have a question? No stupid questions. Sure. John would have had Daniel's scriptures and would have studied them. I mean, he would have um, uh, he would have known the Old Testament well. He would have been taught it all his life. And I'm, you know, I just have this notion that after um, the church got started and the apostles um, began to preach from the prophets and understood the prophets like no one else before them could that they studied them in great detail. And so, yeah, he would have had the book of Daniel and would have had access to it and would have studied it. And, you know, and then John is writing, remember this, that um, John is the youngest of the apostles. And so he's writing the book of Revelation 60 years after Christ walked the, the face of the earth. 
And so he's, he's learned a lot in 60 years. And God has used him greatly. And then God uses him greatly at the end to give us this, the book of the, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So John sees things in, in full color and in great detail that Daniel had no clue about. He just sees it all compressed together. And so anytime you're trying to reconcile these things, you, you're not going to be able to get it time-space exactly lined up because John, Daniel didn't see all of that. Go ahead. Well, I think Daniel, verses 11 and 12, and especially 12, mm-hmm. kind of uh, substantiates what you just said. Yeah. There's that thing, that little phrase, a period of time. Right. A period of time. Right. Right, right. He doesn't tell us what he saw. No, no, he, he doesn't give us the time space. But there's a similarity in what he said he there saw. There is. Well, he, what Revelation explains. And there's one other word other than period of time that says what? What kind of period of time is that? It's an appointed period of time, meaning God has marked the boundaries of it. It's not just going to go on and maybe God will do something, whatever. It's already been set. Even when Daniel's writing here, that what is going to happen has already been established. And the time space has already been established. It's for an appointed period of time. Now, what is that appointed period of time? What's, for, yeah, for, what does Daniel say happens in that appointed period of time? Verse 12. Okay, that the kingdoms that are cited with the small horn, or in this case, the one who makes boastful claims, are not killed, right? Now, why are they not killed? Yeah, they they have no dominion. Why do they have no dominion? Who has dominion? Jesus Christ does, right? During the millennial reign, these guys can't have any dominion because Christ has dominion over the whole earth. Absolutely, the earth still exists. So why does God allow these kingdoms, the people of the kingdoms, to continue to live? All right, there, there will be a revolt at the end, but even during the millennium, why does he allow it to happen? Daniel gives us the answer. Right, but okay, what do these kingdoms do during the millennium? Go ahead. Right. Campaign, that's a good word, right? Because it's not a battle. It's not a battle. Right. There is a point in time where the unsaved are still living. That's right. And there is a judgment of those nations, which judgment of the goats. Right. Transpires before the millennium time clock sets. There's 1,260 days in the Bible, and then there's 1,290 uh, 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 days? Yeah, it's about 45 days in there. That... Right, there's about 45 to 75 days, and I guess there could be a judgment in that period. Yeah, we don't know exactly, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get there, okay? We will try and parse all those things and, and look at those days. There's some missing days in there that we don't know exactly what happens. Um, but this, this we do know. The, God's purpose 
And, you know, and there's people who disagree with me on this. I believe there's a significant number of people who live through the final battle from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom that are not true believers. I think there's a significant number. I think there's some true believers who do the same thing that live through the tribulation time. Namely, the, the Jews do. That they are alive in the tribulation and they, and they rule and reign during the thousand years. So you got all those true believers. And then I think you got a host of unbelievers. I think all the armies of the unbelievers are killed in the valley of Megiddo. I do think that happens. They're slaughtered. But you don't send everybody when you're going to go fight a war, right? You send the able soldiers and everybody else stays at home. Those people are still alive. And so there's a significant number that live through. And the reason God has them live through is so they'll see the glory of Christ and acknowledge it, even though they're unbelievers. They'll, they'll recognize Him and honor Him as the supreme ruler of the planet. And God lets them live through, not so He can save them, but so they will give honor to Christ. Because what I believe, and there would be people who would debate me, I believe that the apostles rule over the nation of Israel geographically. And then the saints, the church, rules with Jesus Christ over the rest of the geography. Because in Revelation uh, chapter 5 and verse 10 or 20, which one is it? Where it says that we will reign with him. I think it's 10. And so that's what I believe happens during that time. But God's purpose in verse 12 here is to allow these people to live through so that they might give honor to Christ and they might recognize Him as the supreme ruler of the planet. Any chance they can be saved? God can do whatever He wants to. But at the end of the age... At the end of the thousand years, there is a huge revolt against Christ and Israel again. Once, once Satan is released after a thousand years, the whole earth comes against them again and God speaks fire down from heaven to consume them. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, what Jerry said was that you know Christ teaches in Matthew seven that the way is narrow and broad is the way of destruction. Why would it be any different in the millennial reign? I don't think it will be, but we don't know. But I don't think it will be any different. And there is still, um, I believe, death during the millennial um, kingdom. I believe there is still people being born that don't live, you know, they don't live through, they get born in the millennial kingdom. So I think all that still goes on like it does today, not to the same degree because the earth has changed. Not only, um, not only will the lion and the lamb lay down together and you can put your hand on a cobra and it won't kill you and all that, but I think the, um, the what's it called? The mountains and the valleys... Um, topology is all changed also. So that Jerusalem is the high point on the planet and the plains 
are raised up and the mountains are flattened, and so Jerusalem stands prominent above all else. So there's a whole lot that I think happens, and then people disagree with me, and that's okay. But I think the scriptures say all those things, and we will get to all those things. I'll show you in the scriptures where all that is described. My purpose today is just to see that in verses 11 and 12, there's a lot that takes place that Daniel does not have a clue about. Because he's writing as an Old Testament prophet. And until you get into the New Testament, these things are not known. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end today. So then you get to verse 13, where Daniel keeps saying this. He said it repeatedly. I kept looking at the night visions. All of this is taking place in one night where Daniel sees it all in great detail as much as God gives him. So Daniel keeps looking and he writes, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him or before him. Okay, so you're answer to the question of who is the Son of Man here would be what? Jesus Christ, Christ, right? Of course. Now, what would Daniel have thought as he wrote this? I see one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. What would Daniel have thought? Well, possibly Messiah... I mean, Daniel knew that there was a prophet who was going to come, right? When we studied John in great detail, we saw that, right? Someone who looks like a man, but he knew he wasn't a man. That's the clue that this person looks like a human, right? Looks like a son of man. Now, that term, son of man, is extremely significant, is it not? Okay, Daniel will use the same word in a different way in a couple of chapters. Look over at um, Daniel chapter 8 in verse 17. And he makes it very clear what he means here. In chapter 8, verse 17. So this is when Gabriel is speaking to Daniel and giving him the interpretation of another vision that he has. And notice that he says... In verse 17, So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the times of the end. So there, when he uses son of man, what does it refer to? To a human, Daniel himself, right? Mm -hmm. You human, you son of man, This pertains to the end of times. Now, this term, son of man, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament also, right? Ezekiel uses it 93 times. There are 48 chapters of Ezekiel, and all but 10 of them have son of man in them. So, very significant and prominent statement in Ezekiel, over and over and over again, 93 times Son of Man is used. But turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel comes right before Daniel. Turn to Ezekiel 1. 
And just look at the first couple of verses here. Well, let's turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. Who's the son of man? Ezekiel is. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel. Who's the son of man? Ezekiel is. Then you look on down at verse 6. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Who? Ezekiel. Turn to chapter um, 3 and look at the first few verses. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll. Who's the son of man? Ezekiel. Ninety-three times in the book of Ezekiel, this phrase, son of man, is used. And every single time it refers to Ezekiel doesn't refer to the Son of Man as we think about it. Okay? Ninety-three times Ezekiel is called Son of Man. Just reminding him of his humility as a human as opposed to the people who are speaking to him. Alright, now, before you get to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, this term, Son of Man, is used twelve times. It's used by the psalmist. It's used in Isaiah, sparingly, like two or three times, and it's used in Jeremiah a couple of times. You can go and check all of those references. You'll know some of them. Like in the psalmist, he would say, who is man that you may regard him are the son of man, right? Meaning whom? Man, people who are born to other people. You can check all 12 of those references. Every single time it refers to a human. Here in Daniel chapter 7, is it referring to a human? Like? Like a son of man. Okay, and if you look, after the one time that Gabriel uses it to call Daniel in chapter 8, that term, Son of Man, does not appear again in Scripture until Christ speaks it in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 8, where he says that the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Now, what was Jesus' favorite term to call himself? Son of Man. Okay? Used 93 plus 2, 97 plus 12, 107 times in the Old Testament. How many times did it refer to Jesus Christ? Once. In Daniel 7, verse 13. It's the only place in all of the Old Testament scriptures, in all of the scriptures, other than Christ speaking about himself, that it refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Why do I go through all that and say all of that? What's the point? Christ, every time he calls himself Son of Man, what's going off in his mind is this is what Daniel wrote about me. This is what Daniel called me. It's Christ's favorite term. So I ask you a question. 
Did Jesus Christ believe that Daniel wrote the scriptures? Did he believe he wrote them in the 6th century? Yeah, not just because he calls them about the abomination of desolation, which is where everybody goes to prove that Jesus Christ believed that Daniel wrote the book, right? Forget about that one. This one's much more significant. It's the only place in all of the Old Testament where Jesus Christ, where anybody other than normal men are called the Son of Man. This is the only reference there can be in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ coming on the clouds. It's the only place where it exists. So that, to me, is the best evidence out of all the Scripture of who Jesus, that this is Jesus Christ coming on the clouds. There's no other person it could be by the references of Scripture. Go ahead. Right. In, when the scriptures were written, okay, there were no little letters. It's all capital. So that's the translators giving you capitalization. Always remember that. Because ESV often, often will not put capital letters in places where I would say there should be capital letters. That's okay. Because all the, the small and large letters are all part of the translation. They're not there in the original scriptures. Even that's true for the Greek. They're not there in the original Greek. That's the translators putting their thoughts about who the scriptures are referring to into the translation. You always have to keep that in mind. Because sometimes you'll see a small s, right? And you'll say, oh, well, that's not, that's not God the, in the Spirit. Well, sometimes they're just wrong, and it is God the Spirit. So you can't trust the capital letters to know who they're talking about. Even when they say son, you can't trust the capital letters. Okay? That's the translation. And you've got to remember, I mean, hopefully you carry a King James, a New American Standard, or an ESV. Or, or you can read the original languages, which most of us cannot. Okay? Because other than those three, the most prominent Bibles that you'll find on your shelf and in the bookstores are what are called dynamic equivalents. They're not literal word for word. They're not word for word translations. Those three are. Everything else are dynamic equivalents. And the best dynamic equivalent is the NIV. But even the NIV, their own translators say, where it was possible, we did word for word. And where it was not possible, we did thought for thought. Well, whose thoughts? The translator's thoughts. So you can't trust it in many places. It's the best there is. I would never say it's not. It absolutely is. But in many places, the NIV falls far short of what the literal translations give you. So be careful. Because you go into most churches today, go into almost any other Baptist church, and almost every person will be carrying an NIV. That's the most popular Bible there is. They don't even understand the concept of dynamic equivalence. And, even, and you know, I went to Zondervan's website a long time ago when they first put out the NIV, and they said that on their website, that it, we're possible word for word, we're not possible thought for thought. Go to Zondervan's website today. doesn't say that anymore. 
No, not to them it wasn't possible. Yeah, but, yeah. Gender neutral is the way of the world. Yep, gender neutral. You know we're going to go gender neutral in the schools also, right? Can't call it boys' room and girls' room. Right? It's just the way of the world, not the way of the, of the scriptures or of Christians. It's the way of the world. In the world, but not of it. Yes, absolutely. Someone wanted to say something over here. In the, in the, well, in verse 12, well, it says like. Right. Yeah. Like the Son of Man. Now, the difference between the vision that you saw, the person coming was like the Son of Man. Right. The difference between any other human was that he was coming on the clouds. Well, yeah, he is on the clouds. I haven't seen a human on the clouds yet. <laughs> well, in Christ, if you... <laughs> they just passed through, right? If you go to Matthew 24, Christ will refer to himself coming on the clouds at the end of the age. So he'll, he'll use this reference out of Daniel many times to call himself the son of Manuel, man. And then he'll, <laughs> then he'll reach back and use it again when he gets to his eschatology chapters and speak of himself as Daniel did, referencing back to Daniel. Christ absolutely believed that Daniel wrote this book and that it was accurate and part of the canon and was full of truth. And so we ought to believe the same. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I believe it is. And, you know, you always, you, there's this dichotomy in, in Christ the man, right? I mean, he was fully God, but fully man. And we went through that in, in excruciating detail in John, did we not? For two years. Okay? Walked through. I mean, but it was glorious because nowhere like the book of John does Jesus Christ define his divinity? Chapter 5 of John, for me, is the best place in all of Scripture to prove that Jesus Christ is God. He does it in five different ways in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. It is amazing. Chapter 6 has always been a a great delight to me. Chapter 5 became my favorite chapter in John as we studied it. Because Christ Jesus defines himself as God five different ways in that book. And his purpose in doing that, he's giving a a presentation to all the Pharisees, proving to them that he's God, standing in the temple. And they miss it. They they disagree with him. But it's a it's a absolutely infallible argument. It's fabulous, fabulous piece of scripture. Go ahead. King James. Yeah. Amazingly, old King James, New King James, they're all fine. Amazingly written by an unbeliever. Right? Translated by Erasmus. Unbeliever. 
opposed Luther, but yet nevertheless a, a good translation. Okay, and I'm not obviously a KJV only guy, okay, because there are other good translations, NAS and ESV. And I, you, you know this, you see it all the time. I teach out of NAS. Shane preaches out of the ESV. That's okay. We're all good about that, right? Don't say exactly the same thing in every word because, again, they're both translations. They're not, not exact word for word. They can't be. They're translations. And some things that exist in Greek don't exist in English and vice versa. And so they're translations. One day, maybe I'll learn to read the original languages and then I won't have that issue. But at this point, God has not blessed me so. Okay, so you understand the point about the Son of Man. And I think it's extremely significant that Christ uses this term to reference Himself. And only Daniel, only this verse, refers to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and all the places where it's used, this phrase, Son of Man, is used. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. When Daniel was writing this book, Jesus Christ exists and knows that he's going to come to the earth as a man. And so he, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, giving inspiration to Daniel to write that, Christ knowing what is going to happen in 600 years, 550. So, I mean, there's great cooperation here. And I want to show you something. Notice that it says that he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Two distinct persons, right? If I come up to you and I'm presented before you, I'm not you, right? I'm me, and you're you. And we're two distinct persons. So here you see clearly, while there's one God, here he exists in two distinct persons. Now, along with that, as Daniel pens this book, how is he pinning it? In what mode or in what style or how is he writing the right words. Yeah. He's being moved by the Holy Spirit to write these these literal words and to get them right so that he doesn't... No um, word of prophecy was given by the will of man, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? 2 Peter 1, 20, 21... So, here you have all three persons of the Godhead active in this one verse. The Holy Spirit inspiring Daniel to write it, and then God the Father and God the Son face-to-face as Christ is presented to the Father. (coughs) Triune God. Right here in the Old Testament in Daniel, we have that truth being taught. Go ahead. God and Christ are two separate right there. Right. What is your thought of the possibility of that fourth beast representing both Rome and the kingdom that he'll 
Yeah, it could be. I would never say that vehemently and deny and say you're crazy that Rome's not involved. I wouldn't take that argument. I just, that's not what I believe. But I, I would never condemn someone or say you're absolutely wrong because I could be wrong. And so you, you have to leave that possibility there. I've been thinking about that. I'll tell you what's also challenging me is that I'm, I'm seriously, I don't believe it, okay, but I'm seriously having to um, look at the argument of the covenantal who believe that AD 70 was when Christ came for his second visitation to the earth and that this is now the millennial kingdom. You have, to, you have to study those arguments and understand them. And so that's what I'm embracing right now. Not that I believe it, but you have to understand it as they understand it before you can make a determination if it's right or not. And so, you, I mean, I don't hold to that. I'm a, I'm a premillennialist, right? I'm a, um, I'm a dispensationalist. You can call me all those things. That's fine. I'll, I'll go with that. I don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. I don't believe that. And yet they do. And there's some soundness to their argument. Okay? It's not just all craziness. And so you have to study it and understand it in order to make determinations about it. And so that's where I'm at right now. Because I'm not just here in Daniel. I'm thinking about things that we have to discuss later. Right? Matter of fact, we'll discuss them in Daniel. And so you have to think through these and understand the arguments of other people. Because there are many true believers who disagree with me. Many. Matter of fact, I'm, we're in the minority if you agree with what I say. We're in the small minority. Most don't believe what we believe. Preterist view versus covenantal. What the preterists believe is, yeah, really... Preterism is the belief that 70 A.D. was the second visitation of Christ. And the millennial kingdom is not a millennial kingdom. It's an expanded period of time. And a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. It means a long time. That is the preterist view. And, you know, um, I, I understand that argument. And I won't dismiss it out of hand. You have to study it. And understand what they believe and why they believe it. But they're most, I won't say most, a lot of other true believers that are truly love God, truly serve Him, truly are saved, are preterist. It's very common. And then there are those who are post-millennialist. Okay, meaning that Jesus Christ hasn't come yet that his visitation is yet future, but is at the end of the millennium, not at the beginning. And the millennium is a long period of time in which the church dominates the world to such a degree that they usher in the visitation of Christ at the end, meaning the church changes the world. This is why some of these people often take the label of reconstructionists that the church will take over the world and reconstruct it and righteousness will reign and then Christ will come at the end of that age. I don't see that happening. And a lot of those arguments, all of these arguments, a lot of them took serious, serious blows during the First World War and then during the Second World War. 
all of a sudden it's like, what's going on? Because the world isn't getting better, it's getting worse. And so they took serious damage during that time. But they still exist, and they still believe, and they still teach post-millennialism and preterist view. Those are very common. They're more common than what I'll label as the dispensational view, which I don't hold to all of dispensationalism, but I hold to some of it because I believe the church and Israel are separate. If you're in that camp and you're a premillennial, meaning that Christ comes at the beginning and that the church is raptured before the tribulation, those all go to kind of together, that's a small minority view. Small. I mean a slender compared to other true believers who don't agree with us. It's okay. I'm all right with that, okay? Because my eschatology, I firmly believe, is none of those labels. It's biblical. And that's where I go. And it's what the scriptures teach. And I don't care what label they put on it. It doesn't matter. But you have to understand these views and and the arguments in order to be able to think through them logically. So that's where I'm at these days. Thinking through. I did this before and I'm doing it again. You know, I dare you. Maybe I shouldn't. (laughs) Go read one of the books written by the people who disagree with you. You ever done that? You you ever read the opposing view? Probably not. But you you have to be careful, and I can't just say that to anybody, because you don't want to be persuaded wrongly. So you have to really think through the arguments. If you look at a man that I love, that I like his teaching, people condemn me for it, but I like R.C. Sproul's teaching. I think he's got some things dead on. His glory of God is probably better than anybody else's. But R.C. Sproul is a partial preterist. He's not fully preterist, but he supports the guys who are. He's what he calls a partial preterist, meaning that Christ came, but he's coming again. So there won't be two visitations of Christ. There will be three. That's what he believes. I disagree with him, but I don't condemn him. I don't think he's crazy. I think he loves God and he has things right in many, many ways. But my eschatology doesn't agree with his. And your eschatology, whether you want to admit it or not, influences the way you live today, influences the way you evangelize today. Absolutely does. Because think about a Reconstructionist. A Reconstructionist is going to try and take over his government. Whereas me, in my view of Scripture, and especially in view of Romans 13, I'm to submit to the government, even if it is evil. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you're a Reconstructionist, because your job is to take over the world and to convert the government to be godly. So it influences all kinds of things that we just never even think about. Go ahead. Right. I have a question. <laughs> Like, like many of us, right? Right. I, I probably have a couple toes in a lot of camps. Sure. One of the things that always grinds with me in Daniel mm-hmm. is that if you look at his visions, the first one of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the, and the um, statue. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Nebuchadnezzar's vision mm-hmm. and the statue. And then this first vision of Daniel, mm-hmm. you look at it being referred to the beasts and, and the statue as being kingdoms that all come in relatively close succession. Right. Yeah. 
possibly. Right. The Romans, but then, but then you have those in the camp, and I think you're saying you're one of those, that takes that last kingdom of the ten toes and the last kingdom of the final beast and fast-forwards thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And I see that as being, um, I, I wrestle with, mm -hmm. I wrestle with, trying to sure. very gently, so I'm not a oh, no. I wrestle with the, that being disjointed, that why would he have a vision of a statue and a vision of beasts that the first several are relatively close in history, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the last one's like way out there. Right. Who knows how many thousands of years in right. the future? Well, because I don't believe we're in a thousand years right now. Right. Well, and I appreciate your honesty. The, the way I see that, and the way, how, what does my mind do with that, is that remember that the vision given to Nebuchadnezzar was somewhere around 600. So you've only got 600 years before Christ comes. I believe all these kingdoms that Daniel sees, that Nebuchadnezzar sees, are in that time frame except for the last one. And that the church age is not understood. When Christ comes, he's going to judge. And there is no church age. So this 2,000 years, thousands of years in the future, in their mind, didn't exist. When Christ comes, he's going to judge. And we only have 600 years to get it all done. Now, they didn't know it was only 600 years, but we know it was only 600 years. So all these things happen very rapidly. And the age of grace, the church age, is not understood. and It's not in the Old Testament visions at all. It's not there. Because not in any other visions of the Old Testament. You see judgment side by side. So I think the church age, the age of grace... The age in which we live, the latter days, is not seen in the Old Testament. And so it's not there. It's not in Daniel's vision. It's not in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Now, I could be wrong, but that's the way that it makes sense in my mind. And God, by his grace, has extended a period of time until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then it will happen very fast again, only seven years. Remember in Daniel, he will say, he'll give us 69 weeks out of 70, and the 69th week is Christ. The 70th week is the end of the age. So all of these other weeks that we're talking about, these 2,000-something years, aren't in the prophecies. That's how I reconcile that. But I could be wrong. But it just makes sense to me. And, and I mean, Daniel will go to 70 weeks. And 2,000 years in between 69 and 70 aren't there in his vision. He sees it all side by side, sequentially. And it is until Christ goes to the cross. And then God, in his great mercy and grace, extends the time for the Gentiles to become true believers. Is the tribulation. Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll... Painfully we will try and count those weeks. <laughs> we will. We will. I can't get away from it. Go ahead. Things to support. First of all, in Daniel chapter 5, when he's talking about, um, I think it's 5, maybe it's oh, yeah, skip. Um, when he's talking about the beast, maybe it's not 5, I'll find it. <laughs> what are you looking for? Uh, when he's talking about the beast, uh, sorry, Daniel 7, my page is turned. Um, Daniel 7, 7, when he's talking about the beast, he said that the beast was different from all the other beasts. That's right. Okay, and that, I mean, that could be physically look different, but it also could be different in nature in the sense that if these beasts represent kingdoms, this kingdom is different because maybe it appears at a different time. Or, you know, and Daniel obviously did not understand necessarily what he was seeing completely. Right. Oh, or at all. 
Right. Yeah, it was hidden. Right. And revealed to the Apostle Paul in his three years of dealing with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whatever you want to think that is, go to Galatians, and Paul writes about that. I believe it was a physical appearance of Jesus Christ to Paul to teach him good doctrine that the other apostles did not learn in their three years with Christ because he did not teach them. And so Christ took the lid off, apocalypsis, and taught Paul things that the other apostles did not know. And then as Paul taught them, it was revealed to the other apostles, this is truth, and they embraced it and began to teach it also. But the revelation of the mystery was given to Paul. Not to, I mean, go through the teachings of Christ and it's not there. But it was given to Paul after Christ had ascended. And so, yes, that the age of grace wasn't even known. I mean, that's why you see them in the, in the, in the scriptures, even in the New Testament, writing about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, because it was, and it still is. No one has that date or time figured out, and only God in his great grace is extending the period of time. He knows when the day is, and it's appointed, and it's fixed, and it's not going to move, but we don't know. Go ahead, Anna. Um, mm-hmm. In Revelation, I can't remember which chapter, sorry. It talks about the thousand years. 20. And when Christ will actually have his judgment, but the start of the thousand years, those who were beheaded. Right, or resurrected. Right. Well, it seems to me that folks would notice that that had already happened. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be in the press or in the history books or something. So that's the best comment number one. It hasn't happened yet in my mind. The second one was the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Mm-hmm. If we think of the legs as being the Roman Empire, think of starting with the hips, that's one, and then we end up with Rome-based Roman Empire, the western part of the Roman, and then Constantinople-based Roman, two legs. Right. Right, then the Germanic tribes, the Visigoths, they go in and they clobber Roman, uh, the Roman part. Rome, right? Right, right. Tintos. But think about historically, mm-hmm. European nations, language, money, exploration, spreading to the Americas, and so on, that influence. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Constantinople, the trade route, Marco Polo all the way to China, India, and even through Egypt and Africa, mm-hmm. with ivory trade and gold trade. So even though there's not one government for those two legs, right. And, and that's a valid perspective, okay? It's not the one that I hold, but it is valid. Yeah. 
one ruler, one emperor, one Caesar. One beast. One beast. One beast. One beast. We are the beast. What? One. Right. One horn, with eyes like a man and a mouth that speaks. So one ru- world ruler. Right. Right. I don't think so. That's the point. Right. Right. The thing that's in my mind that I told you we may take an aside when we, when I come back is. Is the is the perspective of the world and Islam, and how what is its influence worldwide, as opposed to just in the Middle East? So uh, I'm I'm looking at that. That may be what we talk about, just to get perspective. Okay, just to understand that most Islamics do not live in the Middle East. Okay. Just so we understand that well. Most do not. Most um, will leave it at that. I'll study more and hopefully we'll talk about that. But most Islamics do not live in the Middle East. Middle East is a small number of people compared to like Asia or Indonesia or Africa. Small number of people who live there. But that doesn't mean they don't influence things. Okay, but I, I just that's where I'm at right now. We may talk about that a little bit to try and gain perspective. Go ahead. Uh, I like what that thought. What's your name? Tom. Tom. Yeah, I like what Tom said about the Tom Devaney over here yeah. with his wife Lori. <laughs> you guys need to meet each other. <laughs> It's Tracy. This is Tracy. <laughs> Get the app on your phone. Then when someone speaks in class, you can look. Who is that guy? <laughs> I don't have the app and I don't carry my phone, okay? In his vision, you got Nebuchadnezzar's vision. His vision is beast. He's seeing Rome, the Roman Empire. Maybe. The last kingdom can't be wrong because it lasts forever. So, well, the last kingdom, and this is the point that is in verse 14, the last kingdom is the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's right? So, think about this, though. In the, in the Roman Empire, Christ came. He did. No, at the beginning. Well, okay, Republican Party, you're right. But, um, <laughs> at the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Christ comes in that. Well, then in the in the last kingdom, or before God's kingdom, but in the last Antichrist kingdom, Christ comes again after that. Yes. Or it's a kingdom like Rome, the power that Rome had. There's, and there's not been another world power like Rome. So that, that would explain why there's nothing after that in, in either vision. But there's only four kingdoms. And the first three are clear. And there's only one more. And we know there's one at the end of the age. Right? Because it's the one that comes against Christ. So... <laughs> well, so the, the, the protected Nebuchadnezzar could have been the Roman Empire. 
his beast that Daniel's seeing is a kingdom like that one. Christ comes and He's thinking it's two different things. Yeah, but there's only four, and, and God's is the fifth. Right? There's only four. Go ahead. And according to Daniel, I don't think that fourth one's occurred yet because he wrote in verse 19 that I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Right. All the others exceedingly dreadful and with teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remaining beast with its feet. Right. But remember, that's 550 BC. But this is yet to occur when we look back into history. No country devoured, destroyed another country. But some would say that Rome did. Well, all roads lead to Rome. If really, if you look at the economics, <laughs> which is my background. Sure. Uh, Rome did not destroy. It's assumed. Right. Brought into the culture, Took over. Took over. the culture, actually, of Rome. Greek philosophy. Oh, absolutely. Borrowed its gods. Yeah. Uh, never did quite get no. So, whoever Daniel's talking about, in my opinion, that's just my opinion, sure. has yet to come on the scene. And, and that's my view, but we could be wrong. Oh, yeah. We could be wrong. You know, what you'll never hear me say, I hope, God help me, you'll never hear me say, this is who that is. Okay? I'll say, this is who I think it is. This is what you need to look at to come to your own conclusions. But I, I, I will not be dogmatic about these things because you can't be. We could all be wrong. We'll know. We'll know on the other side, you know. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be studying it now because it wasn't given as a source of confusion. That's not God's purpose in giving us the prophecy of Daniel is so that we'll debate and be confused. It's for clarity same thing true about Revelation. Same thing true about Ezekiel and Isaiah. All given for clarity, not for confusion. So we should study them and we should discuss them, but be careful. Just Once be careful. Again, your message and Shane's message match perfectly, except for his notes. When you have a vision, you've got to be flexible. <laughs> 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 Go ahead. So whenever we get to these points, I always gotta, whenever we get to whenever them, whenever we get to these points, I gotta go back to Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things He revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of the Lord. Absolutely. So we should be influenced by them. Yeah. There are certain things that we just are not going to know. That's right. You can study it all you want. That's right. Yeah, I totally wholeheartedly agree. But there's many things we can know. I agree. <laughs> And we should. Go ahead, Tom. You know, one thing I think of is like 30, 40 years ago when a, when a lot of the folks were right. I wasn't even alive then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I, I have a 30-year-old daughter. So. But, but I think a lot of people visualized that, you know, talked about the revived Roman Empire sure, and, sure. And, and Europe uniting under the common markets. You know, the, the ten nations, of course, there's a lot more in the common markets. 16, now. yeah. Start reading about what's going on in Europe and with birth rates and such. And there's a number of dominant, you know, European powers 
that were there at that time, like France and such, sure. that within our lifetime could be uh, majority Muslim nations. Oh, yeah. We, Probably we, will be. Probably will be. So yeah. You wonder, you know, we may be looking at something in the near future, you know, or, you know, where, where Europe may be a predominantly Muslim. It's one of the things I want to talk about when I show you the world view of where are the Muslims, who are they? So we, we may go there. It's a Pew report that I'm studying. So it's a few years old, but it's very informative. So I'll keep, I've got eight weeks to think about that, right? I just wonder how that ties in with the, you know, the, the caliphate. And oh, yeah, that. yeah. And, and maybe that's the foundation of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think all that's in play, and that's one of the reasons I want to talk about it is to shape our mind. You know, we're, we're so Americanized, it's, it's, it's so bad that we, we don't have this perspective that we're not it. You know, we're, I mean, there's a whole world, and we're just a small part of it. Now, I'm, I'm all American, I love America, and all that, yeah, but you've got to get a bigger vision than just that. See, as I said last week, I think it was one of the views I've been looking at is that Harlan is Islam. Well, well, the other thing I want to give you, and I've told you this once before, but it's also another thing we may go to when we first get back together, is what is the Islamic eschatology details? What does it look like? Because I'll tell you, you'll be shocked, and and you'll you'll think differently if I do that. Okay, so I may go there, but you know, all this requires work. (laughs) (laughs) Eight weeks off. Yeah, what else I got to do? All right, we're done. Thanks for your time. See you in eight weeks.